The book of Mark is where we have been and still are. We're going to allow the children to go with some age-appropriate activities there in the room off to my right and your left. I think little Rosalina is going to follow in her mother and father's musical footsteps because she was singing along with the praise team this morning, and I loved it. We love those sounds. Music to a pastor's ears, let me tell you. And I'm so glad that the praise team pressed on and that things got figured out electronically or electrically with whatever might have been going on. Uh, Jack told me this morning that he had gotten some report yesterday because of some of the high winds in our area that the power was out along near this area, and he was really hoping that we wouldn't be affected by that. So we got to school this morning, and everything was on, and we thought, good, that's great. So I'm not really sure what was going on there, but thank you, praise team, for pressing on. Uh, that last song was so powerful for me for a number of reasons, including the fact that that was sung at my own mother's funeral. And I pictured her with my dad in heaven being able to stand in God's presence. And oh, man, that gives you such a hope of glory to think about things that are so powerful that way. And music does that for us. It speaks right from the soul level and helps us express the inexpressible. So thank you, praise team. We're talking today about stubborn unbelief because of the passage in Mark where we have arrived in the journey that Mark is taking us on with different people and how they interact with Christ. I want to start by helping prepare us just a little bit in thinking about how we can develop a stubborn unbelief and what causes that. I've mentioned this years ago, but I love to pick on my kids when they're not here to defend themselves. And my son, Clarky, who was a little bitty boy going to a birthday party, had looked on a handwritten invitation. We were driving out west of Tecumseh, and he said, Mom, we're supposed to be looking for the BAM behind hitching. And Joy said, BAM behind hitching? I don't know of a place like that. The BAM behind hitching, what would that be? And I said, well, there's the hitching post, which is a a kind of an antique mart out on the west side of town, and I think there may be a big horse barn behind that. Do you think maybe that they scribbled it quickly enough that that should be barn? And our son was defiant, and he said, no, it's the BAM. It says so right here. We have to go to the BAM behind hitching. So rather than argue with him, I said, well, let's look for that. And then when we got out to the barn behind the hitching post, he looked back there and he goes, Oh, <laughs> But you can see that all it takes is one little bit going back and forth between what might be a scribble that could go from the R to the N. It's just so good that we uh, were patient enough with him that we didn't just set him straight immediately. But he found out. And he was humble enough to eventually admit that. And so they went to the horse barn for that party. Uh, printing versus typing. I have a story about that. And I was a little older than my son was. I was actually in college, and it was my freshman year. And somebody was telling me that he would only accept typewritten papers for that class. And I thought, how rude for you to demand that of me. I've taken drafting in high school, and I'm a very careful printer. And I can print so carefully that why wouldn't this be acceptable to you? And the professor said, well, because that's the rule, and we're preparing you for the real world. <laughs> and everybody's going to be demanding that, so you just need to take that. And I finally caved in 
even though I had my stubborn pride that thought it's just so unfair that they would make all these rules. And then I took a typing class and I thought after typing that same paragraph, wow, I did that really quickly. <laughs> and this is going to be a whole lot easier moving forward. But there's this stubborn pride in all of us that creeps in and says, but I don't want to follow your rule because my way is better and I'm right. Or how about, let's go back in history a little bit. My first name is actually Galen. I go by my middle name, Clark. My name is spelled G-A-Y-L-O-N. There was another Galen, G-A-L-E-N, who was one of the early physicians that you might have read about or heard about in history. Well, there were some things that they were doing that were really cutting edge. (laughs) 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 And they used to think that by getting rid of some of the blood that had some of the bad humors or bad things in it that's causing the ailment in you that they could help heal you or cure you. And one person might ask the doc, well, how do you know when it's working? Well, when the patient passes out, I'm not sure I'd really want to go through that kind of treatment necessarily. (laughs) These days, however, we might think that there might be something different because we've got these things called antibiotics and there are some things that you can put into your bloodstream. And they say, well, how do you know when it's working? Well, we can take a little tiny sample of that blood in a vial. And we can send it to the lab. And we can see if the antibiotic is actually killing the bad bacteria that's causing harm in the rest of the body. That seems like a pretty good advancement, doesn't it? And yet, we can always tell that there are people throughout history who have a really hard time accepting things, even though they might have abundant evidence to the contrary of their firm belief in something else. What is it that keeps us from seeing something that's really beneficial even if we have seen strong evidence to the contrary? Well, I think it's stubborn pride, which is sort of an evidence that there's a sinful nature because sin does that to us. It makes us self-centered and we want our way all the time. I've mentioned this before too and I'm embarrassed to tell it. It wasn't my finest hour, but it happened. We were on a trip, road trip. We had a, an old, I think it was a TomTom or a Garmin or something like that. It was the GPS in the earlier stages where they didn't have satellite road things all mapped in perfectly. And so there were some things that weren't necessarily accurate. And we got somewhere in the middle of the Midwest, might have been Missouri, and we went off to have a little stop for lunch or coffee or something. And Joy was saying, but I can see the freeway from the exit of this, I can see it, it's right over there, why don't we just turn right? And I said, nope, we're following the GPS. <laughs> because I had a stubborn belief in that GPS which caused it to have a stubborn unbelief in my wife who could see the freeway. <laughs> and so sure enough, we got on this one road, we went down and I thought maybe it's taking us another mile further down and then there'll be an entrance, you know? I've seen the places where that happens, but no, I didn't do that. It took us down to, it was basically a dead end, and then we had to go one more block over and then back up, and guess where we were? Right where we started. And I just looked at my wife, and I said, okay. (laughs) So that's what happens when we have stubborn unbelief. It's putting our belief in something else, and we won't let go of that, and so it becomes a stubborn unbelief in something, even though there's evidence to the contrary, and that's where Jesus is taking us. And we're only going to look at two verses today, plus a side passage in Matthew, Mark 8, 11 and 12, which says, When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had arrived, they came and started to argue with him. Now, the NIV says that they began to question him. 
I think that's a little kinder and gentler way of saying they were arguing with him and they were really just trying to come at him to trip him up or to get him to say the wrong thing, as we can see in other areas where they've done that. Testing him, it says, they demanded that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. Little parentheses here. Do you remember what we've just been marching through? In all of these things, there have been miracle after miracle. They would have heard about it, may have even seen some of those miracles, and yet here they are demanding a sign from heaven to prove his authority. Verse 12, when he heard this, he sighed deeply in his spirit. Uh, have you ever sighed deeply in your spirit? We know what that's like. Why do these people keep demanding a miraculous sign, he says. I tell you the truth, I will not give this generation any such sign. And that's Mark's depiction of this miracle. Now, let me go over to a parallel passage in Matthew because he adds a little bit more to it that's going to really help us as we start to find out what does Jesus do in this situation? How can we respond, not only when the Holy Spirit convicts us that maybe we're the one who's been stubborn, but also when there's somebody who's being stubborn and we're the one who's trying to get them to see evidence? It works both ways. And I would like, for one thing, to feel that as I'm growing older, I might be getting better at this instead of worse. And so I don't want to become that stubborn old guy, uh, and like those two old guys on the Muppets that we were talking about earlier today. I want to be somebody who's open to the Spirit and His leading and can look how to, to engage people in conversation in a way that makes them want to hear my evidence so that maybe they can change as well. So here's Matthew 16, verses 2 through 4. He replied, When evening comes, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. That's where that phrase, red sky at night, sailor's delight, comes from. And in the morning, today it will be stormy. For the sky is red and overcast. And that's the second part of this couplet, which we probably heard, which says, red sky at morning, a sailor's warning. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Now, some people will try to read into that and say, oh, these times, 2020. No, it was being written then. The signs of these times right here. You can't see what's in front of your own nose basically is my paraphrase of what Jesus is saying, because the signs have been all around you. You can tell the weather just by looking at the signs. The evidence is so clear there. And yet, even after all these other signs have been given you, you can't discern what that means. And then he says, a wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign. I'm sure that went over well. But none will be given it except the sign of Jonah and Jesus left and went away. Okay, interesting. The sign of Jonah, what's that about? Well, Jesus left these stubborn unbelievers with that word. You already have the sign. It's the sign of Jonah, and that's enough. Because basically, it says, that's all I'm going to leave you with, because one day somebody is going to rise from the dead, and you're going to see the parallels between Jonah's sign and my sign, because there's some big parallels. And when that happens, there will still be some, even though somebody rises from the dead, you still will refuse to believe it. So you don't deserve any other signs. You're a wicked, heartless generation. Okay, sounds a little bit cruel, sounds a little harsh. I'll talk to that in a few minutes. So look at the connection between Jonah's miracle and Jesus' resurrection miracle. I think we could probably all agree that for a guy to, 
actually stay alive in the belly of a fish or a whale or a whale shark or whatever that thing was, Leviathan, whatever this sea creature was. Some people called it a sea monster in different translations because they didn't maybe have a certain word for it like we have in marine biology. And so that's just what they had. I think it would require a miracle. And I remember going through a phase when I was just trying so hard to find evidence that a person could actually survive in there. But I don't think that's the point. I think the point is it would have required a miracle. (laughs) And that's one of the reasons why the people in Nineveh actually listened to this guy because he had been in the belly of a whale or a fish and he got spewed out. Maybe it was because of the seaweed hanging off of one side of his head. Maybe he was bleached white because of the acid. I don't know. But I would have listened to the guy who came out of the belly of a whale. So it had to have been involved a miracle there were three days and the idiom that they used back then was three days and three nights this is something that some people have asked about i think dennis if you're watching this i remember you asked me this in your living room one time um, that you said what about when jesus was crucified if that's on a friday and they say three days and three nights that show up in some passages and yet it's on sunday wouldn't that be well that was an idiom that they used with that just that was the way they said it oh three days and three nights You would think, oh, and then it would be the fourth day, right? That's the way we would say it. But no, they would say it was three days and three nights, and then the third day, because they just attributed all of one day and they included the whole thing. It was their idiom. Why they did that, I don't know. I've got to ask God, why did the Jews and the Romans use this idiom? But that's what it was. So three days and three nights, same thing with Jonah as happened when Christ was killed, crucified, and then buried. Well, people listened to his message because of the miracle. I think the same can be said of Christ. There were a lot of people, especially the apostles, who were waiting, and then they saw the resurrection appearances. They knew something was drastically different, and so there's another parallel. And the message, if you'll recall from Jonah, that petulant prophet who went to Nineveh, was basically just saying, hey, repent. And when Jesus comes around, he's saying, yes, you need to repent and just trust me. It wasn't, you have to fulfill the Jewish law. He says, just trust me. Repent and trust me. So, there are some antagonistic skeptics admit that they will not accept any evidence for the miracles at all. In fact, some will say they don't include that at all in history. We just don't accept miracles as being possible. So there's a stubborn disbelief in miracles among many historians and among many scientists. Certainly not all, but many. But let me give you a couple of words from at least one stubborn unbeliever. Uh, I've gone on a couple of websites and looked at some debates. There was this guy, very brilliant fella, Peter Atkins, brilliant thinker and a very committed atheist. He was asked, well, what evidence would there be that could possibly convince you that Christ rose from the dead, if there were that kind of evidence. Atkins replied, hmm, well, I suppose that there wouldn't be any. And the questioner, who in this case was Hugh Ross, this particular debate, he said, well, Peter, it sounds like there's no evidence that could persuade you away from atheism. And Atkins thoughtfully replied, Well, to be honest, I think that's probably the case. Well, then what more can be said? (laughs) Probably nothing, because Atkins has stated that he will not accept any evidence that might cause him to shift his thinking away from atheism into something else. And Atkins was challenged on that stance. It was a compassionate challenge, but he was challenged. 
said, well, do you even have an evidence-based view, meaning of your own position, if you are committed to atheism, and they use the term a priori, which means if you have already made up your mind before you've actually entertained the evidence so that you're unwilling to accept that. And he said, well, I suppose, and this is, this is the one that really sounds stubborn. He says, I suppose that even if I died, and if I was confronted by St. Peter welcoming me to heaven, I would probably think I was dreaming. Can you hear that there's just an unwillingness to entertain any evidence at all? That's stubborn unbelief. That's kind of what Jesus was dealing with in some of these folks, which is why he said for you, there is no sign. <laughs> no sign for you. I'm not going to give you any signs because you've already had plenty. And so you've already got the sign of Jonah. And maybe one day some of you will look back at that and see the parallels between my resurrection and Jonah and what he preached. But in the meantime, if you won't accept all this other, there is nothing that will convince you. And so I'm just walking away. Well, what if I were to do that? What if I were to do that in other areas? Let's say science, for example. And if I said to a scientist, an astronomer, you know, I don't believe in black holes. I just don't believe in them. I think it's a conspiracy for somebody to say that there's this vacuum of a black hole somewhere out in space. I just don't believe it. And there's nothing you can show me that would cause me to be convinced that there is such a thing as a black hole. What is a scientist to say in response to that? How could somebody respond? They might say, well, that's dogma, and it's illogical. Hmm. And that's kind of the point between Jesus and these Pharisees, because they were dogmatic in their stance of unbelief about something even though they had plenty of evidence. So sometimes dogma is not only attributed to Christianity. If somebody is dogmatic, which just means firm, unyielding in their belief, it can happen in other areas too, other than religion or Christianity. Which means, and this is what I think Jesus is trying to show us in this interaction, it's not an evidence problem. It's a heart problem. When those who have abundant evidence, even more than most of the rest of us, because they were right there, when they're demanding more evidence, and it's not an evidence problem, it's a heart problem. It's like there are two sets of rules for those who will not accept any evidence that might convince them of a belief related to an afterlife or a God or a creator or miracles. They have one set of rules for that in which they accept no evidence but in every other area of their life, they say, oh, well, show me the evidence and I'll believe it. Why is that? I think it gets to this stubborn pride, which is a sin nature. It takes us right back to that again. That's the one area that we're so tightly gripped around that we will not let go of our unbelief long enough to let the Holy Spirit soften our heart so that we can say, oh, I see the evidence. This makes sense. I love Lee Strobel. I've given his book to several people, and I pray for them to read it or listen to it because he's just so good about the way he approached trying to discount faith, trying to discount the resurrection. He was trying to prove it wrong. He finally got to the point, though, when he had studied all these different things, and he had gone to interview these professors and historians and people who are a lot smarter than he was, he said, and he had interviewed all these experts, and he finally got to the place where he said, you know, I got to where it felt like I was swimming upstream against the evidence. And that's just illogical. I finally got to the point where I thought the only logical thing for me to do is to go downstream where the evidence is taking me. And he did. 
And of course, now he's been a great apologist. He's written some great books, The Case for Faith, The Case for Christ. And he's been able to share that same evidence that's so abundantly available to all of us. Now, if I had the same connection with God that Christ had, which I don't, I'm still in process. I'm in the sanctification phase, which means he's still chipping off the rough edges. Then I might be able to say to somebody, if I really knew their heart, to say, You wicked person! You adulterous generation, I'm giving you no evidence. But if I were to say that to most people today, they would say, you're a hateful bigot, just like all those other Christians. And it wouldn't really get me very far. So I'm not Jesus, and I can't say what he's saying. So I don't read this passage to say that's how we're supposed to respond to skeptics. I think when I see people responding, it's because they've continually seen seen people pour themselves out. Greater love hath no man than to lay down his life for his friends and to just keep kindly telling the truth, living the life, showing people what Christ really looks like until one day the Holy Spirit is able to do something with them. I've been tempted to holler and scream and point my bony finger in people's faces. I've been really tempted at times, but I don't think that that's really going to be to great effect. Well, how about the philosophy that grows into this kind of disbelief among the Pharisees. I think, as I start to parse this all the way back to what Jesus started in his manifesto, the Sermon on the Mount, I think it has to do with the philosophy of happiness or satisfaction. The same thing has led so many people to become stubborn in their unbelief of Jesus that led people to disbelieve in his day. It's because they have developed their own philosophy of what makes people satisfied or happy. Jesus confronts that philosophy of happiness because they were saying, the religious leaders, we're going to discredit this guy because he's going against our philosophy. Our philosophy is you have to work hard enough to achieve this impossibly difficult moral standard that we have erected around that, and that's how you become accepted and satisfied and blessed knowing that we're favored by God. That's how you earn God's favor. That's what real satisfaction comes from. And Jesus comes around and says things like, no, it doesn't work that way. And he gives us the Beatitudes, for example. Jesus challenged that philosophy. Do we still have a similar philosophy today? Things that don't have to do with trust God, live his way, walk according to his standards, and that way you'll find satisfaction. Yeah, I think there's a lot of philosophies out there that have tried to replace that. For example, I can only be happy when I earn this amount of money. I mean, if I can just reach that level, then I'll be happy. Or if I get a perfect score on an exam, or if you're a real overachiever, I'm going to do the extra credit and get 105%. <laughs> or if I get accepted into this school, then I'll be happy. Or if I get a less difficult coworker, or boss, or spouse, or if I get accepted by these people over there that will allow me to be me and do the things I want to do the way I want to do them, then I'll be happy. You see how that philosophy creeps into a lot of different areas today? Well, the reason this philosophy, I can be happy, is what I think is the most damaging philosophy is because it becomes an idol, a substitute for the only thing that will truly satisfy. And that's Jesus Christ and following God's way. We'll never be able to be happy as long as our happiness is dependent on achievements or circumstances or other people. I can only be happy after I have achieved that goal. 
I can only be happy if my circumstance changes for the better. I can only be happy when that person changes in a way that's better for me. And yet, listen to what Jesus said. He said stuff like, you're truly satisfied when you've reached the end of your rope. When there's less of you, there's more of God and his compassionate rule over your heart. Or he says things like, you're truly content when you feel like you've lost what is most precious to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one that you trust most dearly. You're truly fulfilled when you've worked up a ravenous appetite for God. He's the healthiest and best meal you, were, you will ever eat, which is what we did when we had communion. And Jesus called them back. He called them back to the original perfection, just as the prophets of old had tried to do. And I'm going to skip ahead just a little bit to this Isaiah 30, 21 passage when it says, Your own ears will hear him right behind you as a voice that will say, This is the way you should go. Jesus was showing them that way, and they refused to see it and accept the evidence. But for anybody who would allow the Holy Spirit to soften the shell of stubborn pride around their heart, he will whisper to them, here's the way. Now walk in it. Follow me. Jacques and Annie, neat couple, he played drums. He had to be cool because he played drums. We had done some outreach ministry in a gazebo in a public park and their band praise band did some stuff and then our praise band did a couple of things and i talked with jock and annie they were at a party and jock goes up and meets annie and he goes so how are you she goes well i'm miserable but thanks for asking he said oh really why are you miserable and she started listing a litany of all these things of what was trying to make her happy that wasn't making her happy he said well why not try jesus she goes what and become a religious nut he said, no, no, actually, I'm not talking about religion. I'm talking about Jesus. Why not trust Jesus? Hey, you've tried everything else. You just told me so. And how's that working for you? And she did. She tried Jesus. It's like, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And suddenly she found that which truly made her happy. And he took away all those other desires. And she started serving him and putting him first and walking in his way. And life changed for Annie. Oh, by the way, they got married later, too. So who are the modern Pharisees? Well, in some way, it can be devout atheists, like Atkins. In other ways, it can be agnostics who claim there will never be enough evidence to put me all the way over the edge. So I'm just going to cling to that label agnostic. And that kind of lets me off the hook because I just know that there's never enough evidence that will cause me to truly believe that, yes, Jesus is who he claimed to be, and I'm going to trust him with my life. Or... And this is maybe gets into this room. Maybe it's Christians who have a stubborn belief about the way they want to interpret a particular part of Scripture so that I can keep doing this thing that I want to do so badly, even though I'm pretty sure that the Scripture is telling me, no, that's not the way. Here's the way. I want you to walk this way. So it can be even us who has that stubborn disbelief rather than saying, God, show me the way. Help me to walk in it. You're my ultimate source of satisfaction. Let's pray. Father, oh boy, you've, uh, you've really stepped on my toes in a couple of areas as I've prepared for this particular message. 
And I know that you have a way of reaching people exactly where they are with what they need at the moment, and I pray you'll do that. Grateful that you do it in all of us. And I pray that if there's somebody today who hears these words and your spirit is convicting in an area that they say, you know, it kind of makes sense. I think there is some stubborn pride here. And maybe I should start to open myself up to some of the evidence. Because just maybe there is a God and he knows me better than I know myself. Maybe he can show me a better way and I still have this ache as I'm trying to do things my way, and it's not being taken care of. This emptiness is not being filled. So I pray, Father, that if there's that God-shaped void in somebody, they will step forward and admit, yes, I need Jesus. Forgive me of my sin. Walk with me the rest of my life. Guide me in your way. Help me to learn what it means to really live so that I can find true satisfaction, not just temporarily, but forever. And I thank you that you do that for everybody who calls to you. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.